You and I recognize the opposite of grace all the time. We're used to it. We are used to making a mistake, having our nose rubbed in it. We are used to falling short and having somebody point it out. We are used to uh, having the big blow-ups and them being publicized. We are a nation that actually enjoys public shaming. Just go to the internet. If somebody does something wrong and the law is not going to move on it, somebody's going to post a video or a picture of this person who parked incorrectly or who has this opinion that they disagree with. And public shaming is everywhere. We are not naturally inclined to like grace. We want people to get their just desserts. It's, it's uh, fascinating to me. Several years ago when we were just getting started as a church, uh, we were meeting at, over at the Orange Field. There was a guy that came up to me after a, a Sunday morning He said, I just don't understand you Christians. I don't get it. I think that every single person should have to pay the penalty for whatever it is that they do. I don't think I should be able to hand my sins off to someone else. I should get what's coming to me at the end of this life, whatever it is. I don't understand you Christians. Now, typically, this, this idea is communicated when we think of someone else. But oftentimes, when it comes to grace, we say in our head and hearts, although we try, we sing about grace a lot. Okay? This is what amazes me about worship songs. We sing about these things, hilltops, man. We'll shout about them, we'll sing about them. But then when it comes to believing those things, it's a very different game, right? Like, we sing about it, we acknowledge it, but then. When the grace of God applied to us, we're like, wait a minute, Jesus, you don't know about this thing. I find that a humorous statement, but we say it, right? We do. We believe, well, if if he only knew really what I was about, I don't know if he'd have anything to do with me. You and I are not naturally inclined to think grace is a real thing. I don't think we are. I think we've seen the results in this world. We've seen what we're used to. We're used to getting our noses rubbed in things. But to know that God speaks a very different language than the language of the world doesn't make sense to us. That's why we love to-do lists. We love seven ways to guarantee you'll never experience failure again. We love five things you need to be doing right now. 22 things Christians should never do or say ever again. We love those lists. Why? Because we can check them off. I deserve something if I can accomplish this list. Thank you, Relevant Magazine, for all of your lists. You know who else made lists? Pharisees. (laughs) You know who else who loved lists? Pharisees. You know, it's amazing to me when I look at some of these bloggers and these people who communicate all these lists on the internet, I'm like, man, they're, they would, that's like the Pharisees speak right there. You see, the Pharisees weren't really hated by everyone in their day. Do you know that? People were actually fans of the Pharisees. They were pretty popular because they gave people lists. They gave people ways to know that they could have right standing with the Pharisees and with the upper class and then possibly have more favor with God. We don't like these lists just for our lives, but we also like them with God. We like the idea that there's something we can do, say, become, think about, try, that would make God approve us more. Tasks to accomplish, things to say. This is what the Pharisees taught. 
In fact, Jesus said there were heavy burdens now on the shoulders of the people because of them. You and I, we live in a culture of earning. We teach it in our homes. We teach it in our schools. We teach it in our businesses. We teach it everywhere. So why wouldn't we struggle with understanding that we can't earn what God desires to hand us? It only makes sense that we don't understand it, that we don't get it, and that we might not really want it, which is a very strange thing to think, right? I don't understand grace, so I'm going to stick with the lists. I'm going to stick with what I can do and in hopes it'll be enough. This is why many churches in America have chosen what I, what I would think is the ungrace approach. Many churches have become self-help places. Many of them have become, do these things and you'll have a better fill-in-the-blank. And typically churches are very clear in what they are against. That's what fills most church halls today. And it's a problem because you and I can be very confused in what is foundational for a Christ follower to be speaking or announcing as good news to the rest of the world. The problem here is that you and I are typically drawn to others who like to keep lists. Pharisees hung out with Pharisees. They did not hang out with people who did not keep lists. List, list makers and takers and keepers typically hang out together. And the reason we do is because we can measure ourselves against the other list makers and takers and keepers. The Pharisees were probably harsh to others because they felt the harsh reality of keeping lists from their list-keeping friends. You and I are not typically fans of grace because we don't understand it more often than not. But Jesus, when He communicated grace, He didn't simply use His words to communicate grace, the unmerited favor, the uh, you-can't-do-anything-to-earn-this favor of God. And it wasn't simply His words that communicated He was full of grace. It was actually who He hung out with that was a huge indicator that there was something different coming into the world through Jesus and what He was going to do. You and I need to understand something about Jesus. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus is the full physical picture of the invisible God. What we see of Jesus tells us what God is like. Grace does not show up on the scene when Jesus steps into the picture. I want you to understand that. Jesus is showing us what God is like. So to have an accurate view of the biblical God, you have to look at the lens through Jesus. Whatever your ideas are of who God is, if you do not go through the lens of Jesus, you will not have a picture of God. Believers see Jesus and we, we understand He is fully God on display for us to see. What is He like? What is He not like? Who is He for? What is He standing against? Grace is not just a New Testament concept. Grace is all through the Scriptures. You start with Israel. In Deuteronomy, we see God's motivation for pursuing a people that had nothing to boast about. In Deuteronomy 7, people ask, Why Israel? Read, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people of the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be His own special treasure. The Lord did not set His heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And He was keeping the oath He had sworn to your ancestors. 
That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Grace is not just a moment or a period of God's favor, but it's the continual gracious relationship that he has with his people. In the story of Jonah, you and I can see God's grace on display. He calls this man who was a man of God and says, Hey, I need you to go to Nineveh and I need you to let Nineveh know that the way they're living, the way they're going, the things they're pursuing, it's going to kill them. It's going to destroy them. And my judgment is coming on them. Jonah does the very religious thing and he gets up and goes the opposite way. He says, God, I'm not doing what you want me to do. It's, it's, it's crazy to me because Jonah is guilty of the very same thing God was speaking against Nineveh. And so Jonah, you and I, if you know the story, Jonah runs, gets on a boat headed in the opposite direction. The storms come. The sailors are freaking out. They're like, what is going on? And Jonah's like, it's me. Throw me off the boat and everything will be fine. They throw him off the boat. Fish, whale, giant thing comes up, swallows him. Jonah has some time to think about what he's done. Finally says, all right, Lord, I'll do it. And the Lord gives him the exact same instruction. He doesn't change what he wants Jonah to do now that Jonah's had time to think about it and process it. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to deliver this message. My judgment is coming. And so he does. And Nineveh is not a small city. It says it took three entire days to see the whole thing. But Jonah gets up, proclaims this judgment that's coming and the people of Nineveh hear it. And they believe what Jonah says. And the Bible says that they turn from their sin. God says, I've seen what they've done. And I'm going to withhold my judgment. They will now live. Now this, this is where the Sunday school story finishes. But there's another part that I don't think we often consider. And it's in Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. That drives me crazy to read that. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. (laughs) I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Like, really, Jonah? Your reputation is more important than the lives of millions of people, of hundreds of thousands of people. You would rather be shown true than me be compassionate and merciful on people who you don't think deserve it. This story sounds very familiar to a parable that Jesus told in the New Testament. Jesus told a parable of a vineyard owner in the New Testament who went out and he saw some guys standing around in the marketplace and he looks at one guy at the beginning of the day and says, hey, love for you to come and work for me. And I will agree to pay you a full day's wage for your full day's work. The guy's like, all right, cool, puts him to work. A couple hours later, the vineyard owner goes and asks another person, says, hey, I'm going to give you a full day's wage if you'll just come and work for me uh, for the, you know, for the remainder of the day. Cool, I will. He goes back out a couple hours later, after lunch even, and says, look, I'm going to hire you. Come work in my vineyard. I will pay you a full day's wage for your work that you do. Cool. All right. 
The vineyard owner then goes out about an hour before closing time and hires somebody else in the, in the marketplace and says, hey, come work for me in my vineyard, give you a full day's wage. How about that? Cool, I'll do it. Pay time comes. The person who had worked the shortest amount of time gets in line first and is paid the same amount that the man who had been working for the vineyard owner the whole day was paid. The man who was working the whole day gets furious and he goes and yells at the vineyard owner. Like, dude, seriously? I've been working for you the whole day and this guy works for you for five minutes. I don't even think I saw him lift a shovel and you're going to pay him the same thing you paid me. And I love the vineyard owner's response in Matthew chapter 20. He says, he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? But those people don't deserve. Friends, let me just tell you this. If God's grace was based on deserving anything, none of us would qualify. So for those words to come out of your mouth means you don't understand what you have been shown. For you to say that someone is beyond or does not deserve the grace of God means you don't fully understand what you have been extended yourself. Grace is not just scandalous because of the people or the type of person it shows up for, but it's scandalous because it gives them more than they deserve. We have a problem with this typically. You know, it's amazing to me. Um, I love the, the, the story, Victor Hugo's uh, Les Miserables. Um, it's one of my favorite. Uh, Les Mis is a fascinating picture of what we're speaking of. And if you've ever seen the, the newer one, I mean, unbelievable, uh, shot incredibly, the style, the way in which they did it, uh, just fascinating. But the story is of Jean Valjean, a man who was arrested for stealing bread and he was put in prison and this idea of this guy who, who, who stole bread, but for the rest of his life would be identified as a criminal. He, was, he served his time, and even after being released from prison, he had to do the regular check-ins, the regular reminders that he was no longer a person, but that he was a number in a prison system. And he finds this, this shelter in this bishop's home, and then the bishop welcomes him in and lets him sleep, and one night he just decides, you know what, i got to get out of here, but I'm going to take all of this silver with me. And as he steals from the bishop, these policemen capture Jean Valjean, and they bring him back to the bishop because they recognize where the silver came from, throw him in and throw him down on the ground. And the cops are like, hey, we found this dude. He stole your stuff. He said that you gave it to him. That's the craziest excuse we've ever heard. And you should just know that we've got him. We're going to take him to jail. And the bishop steps in and says, he's telling you the truth. But he forgot the candlesticks too. He needs to remember to bring these as well. And what I love, and I want to show you this scene because I feel like it is the wrestling that you and I will do trying to understand grace and so I just want to show you this scene because it's better than any than words that I could actually say. So Yet why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. 
My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world. This world that always hated me. from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack instead he offers me my freedom I feel my shame inside me like a knife he told me that I have a soul how does he know what spirit comes to move my Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in as I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world. On the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. Could have just shown the whole movie because it really is a story of understanding grace extended in a very real way. The wrestling, I believe, that he did right there is, is where we have to find ourselves going, really? This bishop just called me his brother. I know what I've done. I know where I've been. And for this man to speak that I am not a prisoner, but that I am actually his brother is an understanding and a beginning to wrestle with, could this be true? Could what Jesus has done change who I am? Who the world says that I am? This is big. Because if it's true, it is the game changer. There's a good reason why that musical captured the attention of the world. It's because we hunger for grace. People carrying the weight of failure on their shoulders need to hear that there is nothing that we can do that can make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. God does not need to be convinced that He loves us. Do you know who the ones are that need to be convinced? Us. And the way we are convinced of God's love is by looking at Christ. Christ gives us a view into this love that is grander, greater, bigger than anything that the world could actually offer. As Christ followers, you and I struggle in taking grace from this abstract idea, this theological concept, to shaking our bones. 
like changing everything. We struggle with this. We talk about grace, but whether or not we actually grab it and, and, and make it this thing that comes out in our lives, we struggle with. The beautiful thing about grace is that it doesn't go anywhere. Jesus promised us, I'll never leave you or forsake you. What's amazing to me, if you've ever written The Pilgrim's Progress, it's a book that was written hundreds of years ago. But this Christian that it follows, typically when he's presented with an option, a direction, or a person to follow, do you know he chooses wrong more often than not? And the picture of sticky grace, this idea that he is not left, left alone, left to fend for himself, but that there is someone that is consistently pursuing him is communicated very well. The number of times the disciples said, did, or desired the wrong thing is fascinating to me. The number of times it was like, really guys? You're walking with the one who's showing you grace? The fact that Jesus even called the disciples was an act of his grace. Do you know that the fishermen were fishermen because A, they weren't smart enough to be in the rabbi school. They were not the cream of the crop. They were not the best. They did not have all the skills. They did not have all the wisdom. They did not have all the knowledge. They did not have everything that they needed for to be one of these elect people to walk in the way of the Jewish religion. So they fished. And the fact that Jesus would call them was shocking. And then for them to not get it over and over and over and over is just another continual picture of the grace of God. The number, just I'm amazed that they would even say, Lord, can we call down fire and burn these people up who don't get it? The irony of that statement. Jesus is our clearest window into the grace of God. John 1.16 says this, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If you pay attention in the New Testament, there's a group of people's response to grace. Specifically the Pharisees. Grace is annoying. Grace is offensive. Grace is scandalous. After all, Jesus was announcing that tax gatherers and prostitutes were entering into the kingdom of heaven before they would. This would be very concerning to a person who just said, I earned my way in. In fact, what Jesus was saying is what these people, what the tax gatherers and prostitutes have done will not keep them from the kingdom of heaven. But what you, Pharisees, are currently doing, it will keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was accused of eating meals with vile sinners. A meal in Jesus' day wasn't like an hour, grab a bite, I got 30 minutes to chat with you. A meal in Jesus' day was hours of time with people. It was an intimate invitation to get to know somebody. To come into somebody's house, they took hours in the day to prepare to receive a person, and then you were often there for hours upon hours with them. Jesus spent a lot of time eating with sinners and drunkards. Why was he called? A, 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 he was called a glutton and a drunkard because he was hanging out with people for long periods of time, getting to know them, pursuing them. Where Jesus spent his time communicated who he came to save. The people who had no shot, the people who were aware that they didn't measure up, the people whose society had said, forget about them. The people who knew that they would never be able to play the cleaned up enough for God card. This is who Jesus came to rescue. Luke 15, Jesus gives three stories that are very popular stories. The shepherd going after the sheep, the woman who finds the lost coin, and the extravagant father who receives a rebel son home. 
All of these stories were given in a, in a, in a, in a window to explain to the Pharisees why Jesus hung out with bad people. In Luke 15, verse 1, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep who couldn't find his way home, the lost coin who didn't even know it was lost, and then the rebel son who willingly went the other direction and was received home by a loving father. You know, it's amazing to me that I, um, I told the story of the prodigal son when we were in China, just read it off of a piece of paper, and I read it as we were standing in the coffee shop, and I read it out loud, and afterwards, this man stands up in the coffee shop, and he grabs the microphone that they were using for Q&A, and he takes the microphone, and he puts it really close to his mouth, and he says, this is a very incredible story. I was like, I know, right? <laughs> and he says... Where did you hear this story, please? I said, well, Jesus told this story. And the reason he told the story is because he wants people to know how much God celebrates when one person who needs to return home, returns home. And so after some conversation in front of everyone, I said, why don't you and I talk? And so I went and sat down and talked with the man. And I just said, I want to start with a clean slate. I want to know anything that you know about the Christian faith. What do you know about anything of it? And he says, the only biblical advice he has ever been given is God only helps those who help themselves. I just looked at him and I said, the story I told tells a very different story, doesn't it? He says, it does. Can I keep that piece of paper that that story is written on? I said, yeah, you can. See, we live in a world that wants to communicate that it is up to us to make our way. When in reality, God is doing things. Even in me going to China to this random coffee shop to pursue people who have no knowledge of Him. God is in the business of pursuing people. Even those we may write off. There is no depth in which we can sink that grace cannot find us. And He will use anyone to be a teller of that grace. The story of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture, is a window to a very different pattern from the world. From God we deserve anger and we get love. We deserve punishment and we get forgiveness. I was reading a story of a Vietnam vet who came home from war and he, he wanted to buy himself a Jaguar. He bought himself a Jaguar and, and one Saturday morning he decided to take it out on an open road and comes flying down the road and right at the peak of this little mountain spot uh, there was a little hill in the road and he flies over the hill and keeps on flying. Little did he know he passed the cop on that process. Cop pulls out behind him, takes off after him, pulls him over and he comes up to the man and says, Sir, do you have any idea how fast you were going? And the man was like, ah, not really. The officer says, you were doing 164 miles an hour. And the man's like, that sounds about right. The next thing the man does, the, the officer says, can I see under the hood of the car? He looks under the hood of the car. And they end up going to coffee and hanging out. And then the cop just lets him go. And I was looking at that story and I was thinking, you know, that, I mean, that's close, but it's not really biblical grace. For it to be biblical grace, we have to embellish just a little bit of this story. The same story would be told and the man would drive past the cop. Boom! 
Sir, do you have any idea how fast you were going? No, nope. 164 miles an hour. Because you were breaking the law, I'm going to have to write you a ticket. And as I write you this ticket, I'd like you to follow me to the courthouse. Because I'm going to pay your fine. I'm going to pay the ticket that you owe. And then, you know what? Why don't we go to coffee and I'll buy your coffee too. This is a picture of what biblical grace looks like. Not getting what we deserve, but actually giving us more than we really do deserve. See, biblical grace doesn't think little of sin. In fact, it deals with it. Grace thinks much of the love of God. God's love displayed knowing our sin, yet knowing Jesus' love as greater. Jesus knowing what is owed and paying it in our place. There, there was one time my, uh, Doreen and I were out for lunch one day, and it was just one of those lunch dates, random moments where we got to go out and do a lunch. And when it went time to pay the bill, the, wait, the, the, the server comes over to us and says, uh, somebody's paid for your, your lunch. I mean, I immediately was like, who's here? Who knows we're here? Like, I mean, that was my initial response. I was like, what happened? Who did that? Can I at least tip you or can I get... No, it's already been taken care of. Like, I, even in the midst of it already being taken care of, I'm still trying to do something else. I felt helpless. Like, I really did. I felt helpless. And so my wife and I just walked out of there thankful. That's really what we did. We walked away knowing that somebody had paid something that we owed. And there was no other response. Than to, and we couldn't even say thank you to him. You know? But you just walk out going, man, thank you. Thank you. Without God's grace, there would be no other option. And God's grace is not just for those who have hit rock bottom. Grace finds people that have set themselves up on pedestals. Do you know that? Grace finds people who are strong and who say they have it all together and they are knocked off their pedestal by the grace of God. You know, as the band comes and we close this morning, Psalm chapter 8 and verse 3 has this simple question. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. You know, I think some of you in this room may have the opinion of, God, aren't you glad that I think about you? God, aren't you happy that I'm thinking or considering you? When the attitude that understands grace is, God, how could you consider me? There are a lot of good questions I think we can ask God. God's not afraid of any of our questions. But I believe the heart that begins to wrestle with grace can start with, God, who are you that you would be mindful of me? You know, when I, whenever I see in the Old Testament, when I started reading the Scriptures for myself and in the Old Testament, I would see the prayer, um, God, remember your people. I always thought that was a strange prayer because I was like, but God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He's always in, in the know. He knows everything. So why would they pray a prayer that doesn't really make sense? And when I understood that the prayer wasn't, God, you've forgotten us, so please remember us, and God's like, oh yeah, I forgot about these people. To remember is to actually go into action on behalf of someone else. 
So when the people were saying, God, remember us, they were saying, God, we are done if you don't move on our behalf. If you don't do the things that only you can do, we are a sinking ship with no hope. And to say to God, to pray these things, to who, are, who am I that you would be mindful, that you would remember me? I begin to believe that this is where the fuel for the life of the Christ follower comes. Not in thinking I'm greater or grander in my standing with God, but that He would even consider me. The number of people that I look up to and I respect in the Christian faith are not people who say they are spiritual giants. But they're the ones who go, I just don't get God's grace. And these people have been following Jesus for 50, 60 years. To hear that they don't get it, but it continues to fuel them. This is what we are announcing when we talk about the grace of God. Who am I, Lord, that you would be mindful of me? Is an excellent question in light of God's perfect, righteous, just, holy character. And the fact that God went into action on our behalf in sending Christ to be for us what we could not be on our own, to do for us what we could not do on our own, to give us life that we could not find on our own. He has remembered His people. And His grace is oh so good. Grace is not fair. God's sovereign grace reached to us as we used our free will to run the other way. God's grace reached to us when we used everything at our hands to go another direction. Grace is not fair. If you want fair, go any other place but Jesus. Go to Hinduism, Islam. Just try to live life and see if you get fair. You will. You'll get what you deserve. But you know what's not fair? An adultery committing, murderous shepherd king being given grace. David. You know what's not fair? A man named Saul having his name changed to Paul. You know it's not fair? A thief hanging on a cross who deserved to be there, looking at a man hanging on a cross who didn't deserve to be there, but says to the man who did deserve to be there, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's not fair. And I'm so thankful that it's not. In Ephesians chapter 2, But God is so rich in mercy and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Him. Verse 7, why does grace matter to the church? So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness towards us, shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ. I want you to know that an example of grace is not a trophy. An example of grace is not this trophy that God's going to go, look at that person, look how smart they are, look how amazing they are, look how intelligent they are. Do you know what an example of grace is? An example of grace is a scar. 
An example of grace is a blemish. But it's me going, you, I was there when this scar happened. But God's grace reached to me and grabbed me and held me when I didn't think it was possible. God's grace grabbed me in the midst of my scar-making activities In the midst of my blemish-making activities, he rescued me. He poured out every blessing I could possibly want in Christ Jesus on me when I didn't deserve any of it. An example of grace is not this testimony of my power. It is a testimony of God's power. That's his grace. Grace is valuable to those who know they need it. And grace is available to those who don't know they need it. My prayer for Highland is that we will be fueled by this grace all the days of our lives in front of our children. We help our children understand it. We help our community understand it. We help lost people understand it. We help people who are close, but they're not almost there find it and understand it. People who the world has written off, we could say, no, Jesus' grace is bigger, man. It's bigger. So this morning, we'll close as we always do. There'll be some elders or some gel leaders willing to pray for you, encourage you. Not going to make you fill out any cards or anything, but just to say, man, I just want to be present with you as you wrestle with this. And if you're still at this place where you're like, I don't think I deserve it. You don't. None of us do. I'd love to pray for you. Because I believe that understanding, the more we wrestle with, the more we get The more we see of Jesus, the more we understand what grace really looks like. Lord, thank you for loving us. And I ask that in these moments, your heart for us would be communicated. I pray we'd sing loud because we've been shown something we don't deserve, but you've poured out to us more than we actually do. So thank you. Thank you for your grace. It's in your name.